0: Well, where are my Dr. Pepper drinkers at? Anybody else but me? Let me see your hands, Dr. Pepper. Okay, there's about, about half of us. The rest of you need to repent of your sin and <laughs> come into the light. Man, I love Dr. Pepper. If you love Dr. Pepper, you know what I'm talking about. We're fiends, we're addicts, right? And nothing else than Dr. Pepper uh, nothing less, nothing else than Dr. Pepper will, will do. It's why when you're at a restaurant, you ask for Dr. Pepper and they're like, we don't have Dr. Pepper. You just want to strangle somebody, right? What do you mean you don't have Dr. Pepper? And they say, well, we've got Mr. Pib." <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Mr. Pib? No, we got Pepsi. No, I won't accept that, right? I, I don't like those options. I want my Dr. Pepper, right? What, what about this? Have you ever been like really meanly criticized? Now, no elbows, okay? No elbows to spouses or to children, right? Children can drop some truth bombs, right? I mean, they can tell you how you look with 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 no mercy, right? And and it can it can just stop you like dead in your It and hurt, right? That that little four year old terrorist, right, just kills you in your soul, right? Right, because of the truth bomb they drop when we're when we're meanly criticized and somebody says, well, the truth hurts. No, you hurt because you're a jerk, right? We, we don't, we don't, we won't want to be meanly criticized, but then on the flip side, if we really think about it, we won't want somebody just to be nice to us and lie to our face, right? Like, like surely there's another option. Can't you tell me the truth in a loving way, right? Couldn't you tell me the truth? Well, here's what we'd like in a way that like makes me feel good about myself. Couldn't you tell me the truth like that way? Our culture tries to tell Christians there's only two options. Two options, affirmation or hate. This is called choice architecture. In business, the point of choice architecture is to nudge you in a direction that makes the business more money Philosophically speaking, choice architecture is when someone manipulates the way options are presented to force someone to their desired outcome. So we see this in our culture like this. Are you pro-choice or do you hate women? Oh, well, uh, those are the, like, that's it. Like, there's, not, there's no other option. Like, uh, I'm, I'm pro-choice or I, I hate women and I oppose women's rights. Or you either affirm homosexuality or you're a hateful bigot. Man, um, as a Christian, I, I don't really know what to do with that. I don't like either one of those options, right? See, these are false categories. It's choice architecture that are designed to manipulate you into that person's or that culture's desired choice. So how do we respond? How, how do we approach our culture but, but, but more importantly, and, and, and some of us may not even care as much about how do we approach the culture, Here, here's what's more important. How do we approach family members and friends, coworkers, neighbors that disagree with what the Bible says and say a commitment to God's good design that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is actually hateful? What do we do with a culture that tells us that Jesus loved people, he didn't condemn people, and then he told his people not to judge other people? What do we do when our culture pushes back in these ways? We're concluding a series today called Countercultural, where we've been trying, seeking prayerfully to persuade you to consider the beauty of God's good design for gender and sexuality, and not just to consider it, but but to delight in it, because the scripture says God's commands are good. They're for your good, they're for your joy, they're for your freedom. And so not just to consider God's good design, but but recognizing is as the design of God to submit ourselves to God's design, under God's design, and say, God, your design is beautiful. It's not just right, it's not just true, it's beautiful, And it's for our good. And so in week one, we talked about gender. And we said, countercultural truth number one is that gender is not decided. It's not something you determine. It's something that's assigned and we can only acknowledge it. So we said, gender is not decided, it's acknowledged because of the way that God designed us. In week two, we talked about sexuality. And we said, countercultural truth number two is marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. And we said two, two points, the Bible always affirms heterosexual sex and marriage. And the Bible never affirms homosexual sex, behavior, or marriage. Those were our two points last week. And we said, God's good design is one man, one woman for, for one lifetime. This week, we're talking about our approach. How do we approach a culture that disagrees with what the Bible says and even says we're hateful for believing and God's good design. Tim Keller, who pastored in Manhattan for 30 years, reached thousands of secular skeptics and unbelievers, he said this, not talking about this, not talking about gender and sexuality is no longer an option. If anything, it's counterproductive. At this point in our history, Keller said, it's better to acknowledge out of the gate, I love this, that we represent as the people of God, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we represent an entirely different kingdom with entirely different values, and that we are under an entirely different authority. That's us, City Church. That's who we are. We are, and we represent an entirely different kingdom with entirely different values, and we are under an entirely different authority. Keller said, "Ambiguity on these issues isn't kindness. Clarity is." And so, in this series, we've sought to bring. Clarity to these issues about what the Bible says, because the Bible teaches us how to think about sexuality. But the world, this culture, often shapes our desires and feelings in ways that we don't even perceive. The stories that our culture celebrates contain an alternate version and vision of the truth, of goodness, of beauty. And we can't help but be deeply affected by these things. This is the power of story. Stories can make us feel good about bad things and feel bad about the good things especially the stories of those we know and love. And so while we might find ourselves agreeing in our minds with what the scripture says and believing maybe in our minds that it's good, we might resist the truth of God's good design in our hearts because it might not feel good. It's because the power of story, stories especially of those people we know and love can make us feel good about bad things and bad about the good things. So here's what this means. This means authentically following the way of Jesus as found in the scripture will result in living a counter cultural life. We've said throughout this series, the Greek word where we get church from is ekklesia. It means to be called out. We are the called out ones. We've been called out of this culture. The the Bible paints an even darker picture. We've been called out of the dominion of darkness and transferred by the power of the gospel through our faith in Jesus into the kingdom of God. Out of the kingdom of darkness, the dominion of darkness, through the power of the gospel into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son. So we no longer live and represent this culture in the same ways that we would have before. We've been called out of the culture. We've been called out of this world. We now rep a new heavenly culture. It's the culture of the kingdom of God. It's why Jesus said we would be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. We'll we'll be in this world, but we won't think like this world, talk like this world, or believe like this world. And so Paul warned us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to the patterns of our culture, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This culture preaches that you should find yourself, embrace yourself, celebrate yourself, that you should do whatever you think is right on your own eyes. The problem with that is the Bible says that to do what's right in your own eyes is idolatry. Christians do not lean on their own understanding or the culture's understanding of anything. No, as Proverbs 3 says, in all of our ways, we acknowledge the Lord and we do that by submitting to the word of God as our authority. So here's the big idea for this series. Christians are called to be countercultural. We've been called out of the culture. We represent a new heavenly culture. We represent a completely different kingdom with completely different kingdom values and under a completely different authority. A king, his name is Jesus. So Christians are called to be countercultural. And if we're going to be countercultural, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus who authentically follow the way of Jesus, we must prioritize our discipleship and the discipleship of our children. Listen to me, if you're not prioritizing the discipleship of your kids, they're being discipled by the culture. I promise you that. Our culture is discipling your kids all day, every day. Whether you realize it or not, it is. All day, every day. And so if you aren't prioritizing discipleship in your home and the discipleship of your kids. If you aren't prioritizing it, the culture's doing it for you. The culture has stepped in on your God-given role as a parent to disciple your kids if you aren't prioritizing it in your home because the culture is already doing it. So how do we respond? How do we live as the people of God, as the remnant people of God in the world, but not of the world? How do we approach this culture, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers that disagree with what the Bible says, that say God's design is hateful and a commitment to God's design is hateful, that Jesus loved people. He didn't condemn people. And he told us not to judge people. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna study three different passages this morning where Jesus shows us how to remain faithful to God and love people in a God-honoring way. We've chosen these three passages because they are often misinterpreted by our culture and thrown in our faces, and because these three passages directly answer challenges from our culture about how we are to live and act and think. So the first two passages I'm gonna set up with the cultural challenge to Christians. And we're going to see that each challenge from our culture is very shallow. It's taking scripture out of context and it reveals a lack of biblical understanding. And then our final passage is gonna summarize how we're to think and act as the people of God, as a remnant people in the world, but not of the world. So let's dive into the first challenge and first passage. Here's the first challenge. And it goes like this. Jesus loved people and didn't condemn people to which our response should be, where do you get the idea that Jesus loved people and didn't condemn people? Where do you get that idea from? From the Bible? Good, I agree. So, so, so we learn about Jesus and what he's like and what he said in the Bible. I totally agree. So let's turn there, John chapter eight. John chapter eight, starting in verse one, it says this. So Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, and so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. And our culture says, look, there it is. Jesus didn't condemn her. And there's no one without sin, so no one gets to condemn her. Jesus loved her. This is an incredible story of the grace and and the mercy of God. The problem is the passage doesn't end there. Jesus says, Go and what? Sin no more. So Jesus says that what she was doing is sin. And he tells her, go and sin no more. We call that repent. That's what it means to go and sin no more. It means to repent. So Jesus is telling her, I don't condemn you, but repent of your sin. Adultery was an act of sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. Porneia, the Greek word, means anything outside of married heterosexual sex. Sexual immorality is anything, any sexual activity done outside of married heterosexual sex. And so if we're thinking about last week, homosexuality then falls in porneia. It's a sexual immoral act outside of married heterosexual sex. But our culture will say, look, regardless of what the woman was doing, Jesus doesn't condemn her, and there's a good reason for that. You know why Jesus doesn't condemn her? Well, if we've been studying the Scripture in context, we would have already read John chapter 3, which was five chapters ago, where Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 3, watch Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Why would you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God? Maybe you need to be born again because the first time you were physically born, you were born into sin with this attitude of rebellion against God. And that's what the Bible says, that every one of us are born into sin. And so we sin." And our sin separates us from God. The Bible is clear all throughout the scripture. We are born into sin. David would say, I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time I was conceived. Paul would say in Romans 5 and all throughout his letters, we're born into Adam. And so we inherit this sinful nature from Adam and Eve. So Jesus says, if you wanna inherit the kingdom of God, you gotta be born again because when you were born the first time, you were born into sin. And so we're born again spiritually, our sins forgiven, we're made right with God when we give our lives to Jesus. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But it doesn't end there. Look what, starting in verse 16, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's a spiritual death That's not annihilation. It's a spiritual death. Should not perish, but have eternal life. We all know and love this verse. But you gotta keep reading. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There it is, Clayton. There's John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to save people, he didn't come to condemn anybody. Keep reading verse 18. This is Jesus. Whoever believes in him, in the son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus has already made it clear that we are all born into sin. It's why we gotta be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. And why do we need to be born again? Because we're born into sin? Because we stand condemned already you were not always a Christian. Like you you, you were not always, you weren't always a Christian. No, there was a day where through the power of the Holy Spirit, you recognized and understood you were a sinner that needed to be saved. You gave your life to Jesus. You were born again. And at that moment, your sin was forgiven. You were made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven because of what Jesus did, not because of what you can do for you, but because of what Jesus did for you. But Until you give your life to Jesus, until you repent of your sin and give your life to Jesus, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, you stand condemned before God. Already. And through your unbelief, you remain condemned. So, In Luke 13, verse 3, and in Luke chapter 24, we saw this in our study of the gospel of Luke. Jesus would say, unless you repent, you will perish, Luke 13. In Luke chapter 24, unless you repent, there will be no forgiveness of sins. So there is no forgiveness of sins without repentance, Luke 24. There there is only a perishing, a spiritual death, Luke chapter 13, unless you Repent, why? Because you stand condemned already. Let's go back to John 8. Jesus doesn't condemn her, why? He came to save her. Why does he need to save her? Because she stands condemned already. He doesn't condemn her, why? She stands condemned already because of her sin. And so, what does Jesus do? There's no condemnation, but there is an invitation out of condemnation through repentance. Jesus says, Go and sin. What she is doing is sin. Make no mistake. Go and sin no more. Repent, Jesus says. Repent or you will perish. Repent, or Luke 24, there will be no forgiveness of sins unless you repent. Jesus clearly denounces the way in which this woman is expressing her sexuality. Go and sin no more. He is denouncing the way that she expresses Her sexuality. Now, here's what we've got to get clear, and here's what the church needs to understand that Jesus does not denounce her preferences, her desires, or to use a different word that our culture is throwing at us today, he doesn't even denounce her orientation, he denounces her practice here's an easy way to remember. Jesus doesn't denounce her preferences, but he does denounce her practice. He says, your practice is sexual immorality. It is sin. So there's no condemnation, but there's an invitation out of condemnation through repentance. And this invitation, here's what we've got to understand. And here's what we pray our culture will understand this invitation out of condemnation through repentance is an invitation to freedom. It's an invitation to joy. It's an an invitation to salvation through Christ and through Christ alone. And if she rejects this invitation out of condemnation through repentance, she, as Jesus has already made clear in John chapter 3, she will stand condemned. Because she's already condemned before God because of her sin. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a story about this man that they is called the, the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? How, how, you know, basically, how can I go to heaven when I die? How can I know for sure? And Jesus says, keep all the commands. And he's like, I've I've kept all the commands. I've been a good person. I've I've kept them since I was little. And Jesus says, okay, yeah, that's true, but there's one thing you lack. He's a very rich man. Go and sell all you have and then come and follow me. And the rich man, the scripture says, goes away very sad. He walks away sad. because he cannot give up this one thing. He can't repent of this idol that's in his heart. And he walks away sad. And then the disciples say something very important. Who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Here's what you got, you got to get this. Rich young ruler, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus, you, you lack one thing, go sell all you have, come follow me, there's an idol in your heart, there's something you're not willing to repent of. So, so repent, he walks away sad. In other words, he rejects Jesus's invitation out of condemnation through repentance. He rejects the invitation, he walks away sad. And here's what the disciples recognize, this man walked away remaining condemned. Who can be saved then? You see their response, who can be saved? They recognize that the rich young ruler who walked away said, rejected Jesus's invitation out of condemnation through repentance. And so by doing so remains condemned. Jesus, clearly, when we study all of the scripture, when we consider the full counsel of the word of God, offers invitations out of condemnation through repentance. It's not as shallow as the culture would have us believe. And then there's something else that we gotta chat about for just a second. Because when our culture says, Jesus loves everybody, He didn't condemn anybody, Jesus never judged anyone. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says he's coming back. And Jesus says when he returns, he's gonna sit on a throne. And here's what's gonna happen. Everyone who's ever lived will stand before him. And Jesus says those who rejected the invitation out of condemnation through repentance, Jesus calls those people goats. And it says in Matthew 25, Jesus will tell the goats, those who rejected the invitation out of condemnation through repentance, he's gonna tell the goats, depart from me, I never knew you. Go away into the eternal fire that was prepared for you. But he'll say to the sheep, those who accepted the invitation out of condemnation through repentance, He'll say to the sheep, welcome to the paradise, to the kingdom that was prepared for you. Jesus in Matthew 25 says that when he returns, he's going to sit on a throne and he uses the word judge. You see, make no mistake. We just sang a song that says he's the lion and the lamb. He came the first time as the lamb, but he's coming back as the lion. And Jesus in Matthew 25 and in other places like it says that when he returns, he's gonna sit on a throne and here's what he's gonna do. He's going to judge. Jesus will be your judge. And so we've gotta remember that when our culture tries to say Jesus loved everybody, he didn't condemn anybody, like he didn't judge anyone. Those are half truths. They're very shallow, taken out of context. But when we study the full counsel of the word of God, we learn that, yet yeah, Jesus didn't condemn people because they stood condemned already. There was an invitation out of condemnation, but then Jesus is going to return and he is going to judge. The second passage we're gonna look at is Matthew chapter seven. And our culture will say, okay, okay, maybe Jesus can judge, but Jesus said his people aren't supposed to judge anyone, right? To which we respond, where do you get the idea that Jesus said that we aren't supposed to judge anybody? The Bible, right? That's the only place you could get that from. Cool, like I, I, I agree. So we learn about what Jesus said about judging people in the Bible, right? I totally agree. So let's go there. Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse one, it says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. There it is, Jesus, get them. Get those Christian hypocrites, right? Right? Don't judge people or you too will be judged. Verse two, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, get them, Jesus. Those religious Christian, those hypocrites judging people, right? Get them. See, there it is. I told you, Jesus told his followers to not judge anybody. Well, first of all, the Greek word for judge here is a sharp, unjust criticism. It's to discriminate against somebody. It's to look down on someone. It's to determine someone's fate, which we don't have the power to do. But we get our word critic from this Greek word. And some have the spiritual gift of criticism. This is not a spiritual gift. I'm joking, right? No, no elbows, okay? No elbows. This is not a spiritual gift. This isn't a, is a bad thing, okay? And so Jesus says, don't, don't judge. Don't don't criticize people with unjust criticism. Don't, don't look down on everyone else like you're holy and you got it all together and everyone else is like worse off than you, right? That, that Jesus said, don't, don't do that. But we gotta keep reading. Look at the end of verse five. You hypocrite, first... Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the. Sp- Wait, where is this going? Wait, what? Jesus, you just said don't don't judge. Can't we? It was supposed to stop there. No, we got to keep reading, and we got to study the scripture in. Context, Jesus, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Wait a second, what? Maybe Jesus isn't telling his people not to just carte blanche, not judge people. Maybe Jesus is actually telling his followers how to make a right judgment. Exactly what he's doing. When you take the plank out of your own eye first, I can see clearly, and now I can approach my brother or sister in Christ with the right heart, with the right attitude. Because when I take the plank out of my own eye, I can now approach my brother or sister with a spirit of humility, with mercy, with grace, because I know that God has been gracious and merciful to me. He's been patient with me. And so it changes everything about my attitude and the spirit in which I approach my brother or sister in Christ. So here's what Jesus is really saying. Don't judge harshly, don't judge superficially, don't judge hypocritically, and don't judge outside the family. What do we mean by that? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul would say this. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. It's the Greek word porneia. Something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. This is incest. You're so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame. And watch this. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. You should remove him from your fellowship. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 5, verse nine. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. This is the Greek word porneia. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. What kind of people? People who claim to be believers, brothers or sisters in Christ, and yet live in open, unrepentant sin. Verse 12, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scripture said, you must remove the evil person from among you. It is our responsibility to judge those inside the church those who claim to be followers of Jesus and yet live in open, unrepentant sin. The expectation is that when a believer is living or walking in sin, there will be other believers that confront that person in love and with mercy and with grace and with humility and say, brother or sister, like you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you're living in sin and that shouldn't be. It is your responsibility to judge those inside the church. Galatians 6, Paul says this, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly, there it is, Matthew 7, remove the plank from your own eyes so that you can see clearly and approach your brother or sister in Christ with humility and with grace, gently and humbly, Paul says, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. In John chapter seven, verse 24, Jesus says this. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Wait, Jesus, I thought you said don't judge. No, Matthew seven, Jesus is teaching his followers how to make a right judgment. Judge, Jesus says, with right judgment. D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, said this about John 7, verse 24. In an age when Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged, has displaced John 3:16 as the only verse in the Bible that the man on the street is likely to know. It's perhaps worth adding that Matthew 7:1 forbids judgmentalism, not moral discernment. By contrast, John 7:24 demands Moral and theological discernment in the context of obedient faith. Make a right judgment is the scripture's command to the people of God. And God, all throughout the scripture, will warn his people of approving of what God calls sin, of affirming that which the Bible does not affirm. There are strong warnings to the people of God to not affirm that which the Bible does not affirm. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20 says this, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. These statements, what sorrow awaits Or Jesus would say in the gospels, you you might remember and say, woe to you, right? Woe to you, what sorrow awaits. These are words of warnings of condemnation. Woe to you means condemnation is coming, right? Disaster is coming, Woe to you, disaster is coming to those of you. What sorrow awaits, disaster is coming for those who say that evil is good and that good is evil. For those that affirm what the scripture clearly does not affirm, woe to you. Jesus would say it like this. It's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea than to lead someone astray and cause them to sin. It's better, Jesus says, for you to have a cement block tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the sea and drowned to death than it is for you to affirm what the scripture clearly does not affirm and lead someone into sin. Romans 1 verse 32, we saw this last week, but Paul will say in Romans 1 that idolaters trade the truth of God for a lie. And in 132 Paul says this Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but watch this but give approval to those who practice them This is a word of warning To those who trade the truth of God for a lie and give approval to people who were living in sin, who affirm that which the scripture does not affirm. In Revelation chapter two, Jesus two times condemns two different churches that lead people into sexual immorality, he condemns it for affirming that which the scripture does not affirm. So let's summarize what we're talking about, how we're to think, what we're to do with our last passage. Mark chapter two, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. These were terrible people, tax collectors. The Jews considered them the, the scum of the earth, the worst of sinners. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. That's a Bible word for saying famous sinners. These are the the worst of the worst, right? These are very famous sinners. And Jesus is going to dinner with him. There were many people of this kind among Jesus's followers. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? I want you to notice here that religious people expect distance from sinners, not dinner with sinners. And this is the grace and mercy of God, that Jesus would walk up to Levi at his tax collector's booth in his sin and invite him to follow him. But here's what you've got to understand. What is this invitation? Just like it is to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Come follow me. There's an invitation out of condemnation through repentance by following Jesus. And so Jesus is eating with Levi and his tax collector buddies, his famous sinner friends, and the religious people don't like it. They're expecting distance, not, not dinner. And we love this part of Jesus that Jesus took sinners to dinner. Jesus took sinners to dinner. But it doesn't end there. Verse 17. When Jesus heard this, why do you eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Now, you've got to catch the tension here. Jesus taking sinners to dinner, hanging out with sinners, partying with sinners at, at Levi's house, the religious types getting all up in arms and, and, and our culture loves this part of Jesus. Jesus is hanging out with sinners. Jesus is hanging out with people, nothing like him. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Why are you eating with such scum? Jesus, why are you doing this? Jesus gives us the answer. Why? Why take sinners to dinner? Why do this? Why engage in these kinds of relationships with these people who are nothing like you? Jesus answers very clearly. Healthy don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I haven't come for those who think they're righteous. I've I've come for those who know they're sinners. Put yourself in Levi's place. Put, Put yourself in his friend's place. What did they just hear Jesus say? Whoa, wait a second, Jesus. Why are you here with us again? Because sick people need a doctor? And because sinners need a savior? Jesus, are you saying that I'm a sick sinner? Do you feel the tension here? Why are you eating? Jesus, why are you taking sinners to dinner? Sick people need a doctor. Sinners need a savior. Hold up. Uh, You're saying I'm a sick sinner and that's why you're here eating with me. That I need a doctor and that I need a savior? Jesus, are you saying that I'm a sick sinner? And some of you are here today and you're like, Pastor, wait a second. Are, are, you, are you trying to say that I'm a sick sinner? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. No, seriously. That, that is what Jesus is saying. Every last one of you. that that I'm a sick sick sinner. And so are you. And so are they. You see Jesus took sinners to dinner. But Jesus wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. Yes, Jesus takes sinners to dinner. But Jesus wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. Jesus said, I came for those who know they're sick and need a doctor, for those who are sinners and know they need a savior. When we think about self-righteous people, we, we tend to think of the very religious type of self-righteous people, right? We, we think about the people who are engaged in religious activity, and because of their religious activity, and because of their religious routine, they think they're better than everybody else. That, that's the self-righteous people that we kind of always tend to think of. When we think of the self-righteous, when we think of people who think that they're righteous, we we tend to think of the Pharisee who thinks they're righteous, who thinks that their religious activity makes them right with God. That's who we've always thought of. Here's what I want to submit to you. Today, we've got a new kind of religious person. We've got a new kind of self-righteous person person it 's not that the religious type has an, still doesn 't exist they, they do what i 'm going to submit to you is that there is a new kind in our culture a new kind of self righteousness a new kind of person that thinks They're righteous. And it's the person that says, I'm basically a good person, that my desires are the design of God. And so they're therefore, they're beautiful. I don't need to be saved from sin because I'm not that sinful. And here's what this kind of thinking always results in, a downplaying of the cross and a downplaying of the doctrine of hell. It's a person who says, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm basically good. Born into sin? Ugh, I don't like the way that feels. It's a person who thinks because I'm inherently good, that means my desires are good in the way that God made me, and so I should pursue those desires. I should embrace, find myself, embrace myself, and celebrate myself. This is the new self-righteousness. It's the new thinks they're Righteous. And so to say to that kind of self-righteous person, no, you're a sick sinner that needs a doctor, that needs a savior, it's offensive. But listen, Jesus said, we saw this in our doctrine, study of doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen, every believer who's ever believed the gospel started with the Holy Spirit convincing them that they are a sick sinner that needs a savior. That's where it started. That you're a sick sinner that needs a savior. And Jesus says, that's who I came for. The person who says, who knows they're a sick sinner that needs a savior. Jesus said, that's who I came for. So, so, When our culture tries to throw these choices in our face, choice architecture, listen, it's this or this. We've clearly seen from Jesus, there's so much more than those two options that our culture throws at us, right? It's deeper than that. It's not as clean and as tidy as that. It's a lot more tense than that because the people of God are called to be a people of both and Taking sinners to dinner and calling sinners sinners. In John chapter 1, John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Here's why truth without grace is mean, grace without truth is meaningless. It's not going to get you anywhere. However, grace with truth is medicine. It's what the sick sinner needs grace and truth. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. And Jesus is who every sick sinner needs grace and truth. I'm sick. You're sick. You need a doctor. Or if you're a believer, you you needed a doctor. You needed a savior. So here's countercultural truth number three. Christians extend compassion anchored to conviction and share conviction clothed in compassion. This is our way forward as the remnant people of God the remnant people of God will live by and walk in this tension by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will extend compassion anchored to conviction and we will share conviction clothed in compassion. Now, I know we have a lot of students in here today, elementary, junior high, high school, college. I just wanna chat with you for a minute. That the way forward for you is definitely not poking fun, making fun, or telling jokes about the people at your school that think, believe, and behave differently than you do. Listen, this is a heavy burden for you to bear, students. But the way that you treat someone now in middle school and high school can affect someone's life for a very long time. I still remember in sixth grade, a girl that I thought was cute telling me that I looked weird. It hurt my feelings. I still remember it to this day. And listen, it's not fair for a junior high or middle school or a high school student to bear that burden, but it just is what it is. the truth. Your words matter. And so as a disciple of Jesus in middle school and high school, it means being a person of compassion to those who disagree with you, those who think differently, talk differently, walk differently, behave differently than you. And it goes a step further than this. It's not just not doing the wrong thing. It's like Jesus did, maybe going down and sitting at that table with that kid that's sitting all by themselves and having dinner. Or in your case, lunch. Like, that's hard, that's, that's really, d- yeah, I know, it is. I get it, it's very hard. And so you may need to grab a friend and have them go with you. And instead of going to your table and telling jokes about that kid who's struggling with their gender, who's struggling with their sexuality and probably wishes that they weren't, And extending compassion. Parents, I want to chat with you for a second. I know many of you face the dilemma of your children identifying or struggling with their identity. Maybe having kids that are already identifying as. LGBTQ+. And this message really hasn't been geared like practical tips for parents with with children who are struggling with these issues. This has been more about the church and our culture and the way forward for the church. But at the same time, the dilemma that you face a feeling like I'm either gonna love my child or I'm gonna love my God is choice architecture that's been put on you from our culture. That there's no other way for, there's no other option, and the scripture says there is. It doesn't mean it's an easy option. And it's not A plus B is gonna get you C. It's not that simple, and you know that. but this is the way forward. Extend compassion that's anchored to conviction. Otherwise, that grace is meaningless. And you share conviction clothed in compassion. Otherwise, that truth is just mean. The same principle applies to you. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean your child as most parents know and realize, it's gonna be like, oh, okay, compassion and conviction. Awesome, we're good. That's not how it's gonna go. And yet it remains the way forward for you as a believing parent who wants to remain faithful to your God, faithful to the word, but love your children all at the same time. Listen, Jesus said, he promised us, we saw this in our study of the gospel of Luke, that he would divide families. It's a painful, painful truth. And so the way forward for the parent isn't a given. It's not A plus B is gonna give you C. And yet the way forward remains the same, compassion and conviction, grace and truth. As much as we are called to love people, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, we are called to love God more. It's the first commandment. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, you must believe if you're, going to remain faithful to God, if if you're going to be a part of the remnant people of God that remain faithful to him and to his ways, regardless of the direction the culture headed, if you are going to remain faithful, you must believe I've got to love God more than I love anything or anyone else. Otherwise, I can't love my neighbor as myself in a God-honoring way. I can't love my family, I can't love my kids in a God-honoring way if I don't love God more. We must be convinced of this. And this is our desire, is to faithfully interpret the word of God, submit ourselves to the word of God, and to love our neighbors, our family, friends, and coworkers by sharing the truth and love. In James chapter five, James, the brother of Jesus said this, you can be sure, that whoever brings the sinner back from wondering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Listen, that's the dream. That's why we're talking about what we're talking about. It's to bring sinners back from wandering, to save people from death and destruction and to bring about the forgiveness of many sins. But here's what we've got to all understand. Like, even if you haven't been with me the past three weeks, even if you're not like totally on board with where I've been the past three weeks, here's what you must understand. The scripture is clear. These are eternally significant matters. We saw last week, Paul saying, those who practice, who live in these sins that we've been talking about will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. James says here that when we... Bring a sinner back from wondering. We saved that person from death. These are eternally significant matters. You cannot take these things lightly. You cannot just take someone's word for it on social media. You've got to lean in and study. Like if you disagree, if you haven't been on board with me, you need to lean in and study all the more from this day forward and make sure you're getting this right because these are eternally significant matters. Your life is on the line. Your kids' lives are on the line. Everyone we know, their lives are on the line. These are eternally significant matters. I wanna close this series with this psalm from Psalm 16. And I want you to see that Jesus' invitation Out of condemnation through repentance is an invitation to freedom, to joy, to life, because Jesus is a good king. In Psalm 16, David says this I said to the Lord, You are my master. Is Jesus your master? David said, Jesus, you are my master. You're in charge. What you say goes. You are my master. And then he says this, every good thing I have comes from you. In other words, you're a good master. You're a good king. You're my master, but everything that's good in this life, everything good that I have, it's come from you. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. There's only trouble for those who go their own way. Troubles, David said, chase after those who go after other gods. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. Some translations say it like this, and I love it. David says in Psalm 16, the lines that you have drawn for me have fallen in pleasant places. The boundary lines that you have drawn for me, David says, they've fallen in pleasant places. In other words, David's saying, your boundary lines are good and they're good for me. Verse nine in Psalm 16, no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice and my body rests in safety. You will show me the way of life. You're my master, you're good. Everything I have comes from you the boundary lines that you've drawn that the way of life you, David says you've shown me the way of life granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever David says God your commands, your boundaries they are good they're a blessing. They bring joy, they bring life, they bring prosperity, they are pleasurable. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. God's design is good, it's beautiful and it's for your good. Would you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed, just a a moment between you and the Lord right now. The scripture says in Isaiah, we've all like sheep. We've gone astray. Each of us have gone our own way. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been going your own way. You haven't been going God's way. You've been going your own way. The Bible says when you go your own way, that's called sin. And you're actually following your master, the devil, Paul says in Ephesians 2. You're going your own way right into destruction. But as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, as Jesus said to the rich young ruler, repent. There's an invitation out of condemnation, and it's through repentance turning from your sin and giving your life to Jesus. And some of you are here today, and you've been thinking that that maybe when you die, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that God's gonna just kind of let you into his heaven, that you're a good person. Listen, the scripture says there's no one good, no, not one. We've all sinned against God. We've all fallen short of God's standard, have a relationship with him, and to go to heaven when we die. Every last one of us have. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses eight and nine, Salvation's not a reward for the good things that we've done. In other words, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you can only be forgiven of your sin, Jesus would say, when you repent of your sin, turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision before, today's your day. Now is your time to give your life to Jesus. Let us know about that decision. Take that Connect card. It's in the seat back in front of you. Fill it out. Check the box says, I'm giving my life to Jesus today. Take that Connect card to our welcome center in the lobby. We've got a free gift for you and we wanna pray with you and celebrate that decision with you. So if that's you, give your life to Jesus today and then let us know about it. God, we pray that today, as we finish this series, that you by your spirit would convince us that your commands are for our good, that your design is good and beautiful, that you're a good king and that everything good comes from you. God, give us trust in your word and in your ways and that the boundary lines that you have drawn are pleasant. God, show us the way of life, granting us the the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. And God, make us a church that loves our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves our neighbor as ourself. A church of grace and truth, a church of compassion and conviction. God, that we might be that city on a hill that Jesus said his disciples would be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in worship?